Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have two guests, uh, Dr. Benjamin Jolly, who's a pharmacist at Jolly's Pharmacy, and also publishes the blog, Ramblings of a Pharmacist. He graduated from uh, as St. Louis College of Pharmacy, so go Eutectics. And the, my second guest is Katie Trotta. She went to the Northeastern University, so go Huskies, and did a residency with Campbell University through Walgreens. A little unique to have a community fa- community pharmacy residency I haven't had on here before. So welcome, Katie and Ben. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Awesome. Hey, Thank so, you so much, Eric. Uh, awesome. Hey, thanks, you guys, for coming on here. And the reason I invited both of you on here was uh, President Trump recently kind of dropped this bombshell that seemingly came out of nowhere about an executive order about price changes or PBM, some minor PBM reform with um, lowering prices and prescription drugs. And you guys both, obviously, I kind of reached out to as people who expressed interest in this topic and kind of want to get some opinions on it because we all in pharmacy have been begging for PBM change probably for at least the last five years now, if not a little bit longer. And there was a lot of praise heaped on him for this from pharmacists all over. A few people were a little tempered. Other people were throwing their hands in the air and couldn't get enough of it. So I want to bring some people on who are some peers who kind of know about some of these drug pricing games that are played and kind of vet this out of what we think it is with a few different opinions. Because like I was kind of saying in the preface to this, a lot of people take Trump in different fashions and I they're in different ways. And I think that it's important we get multiple opinions on it so that we're thoroughly thinking through on this and not just get one person's uh, diatribe. So I'll throw in some thoughts here too. Um, so with that, let's start with the changes made around 340B. Um, ben, if you can go first, can you explain kind of what the executive order aimed to change around with this? So yeah, th- th- this one was probably the least uh, crazy change. Um, so this, so 340B is a drug pricing program that allows uh, certain entities, federally qualified health centers, hospitals that serve a disproportionate share of low-income patients, to purchase drugs at a dramatic discount to where other pharmacies could purchase them. Um, so those those entities are able to buy, for example, Humira for one penny instead of five thousand dollars. And the reasoning is to lower is to stretch federal resources farther. And so what what this proposal said was uh, it mandated that the 340B program recipients, the specifically federally qualified health centers, uh, pass along that discount to their patients who are taking insulin and epinephrine. So if you're getting an EpiPen or you're getting insulin from a federally qualified health center pharmacy that's receiving that discount, rather than paying you the full cash price of you would get it for the price they're paying, which is maybe, maybe two cents even, maybe a hundred dollars. And so that'll, that'll be very helpful for those, for those patients in that set of circumstances, but it won't really have a much, a broader impact outside of those two drugs. Well, I do kind of feel like it might cause a little bit of an issue for some of the FQHCs because I know a lot of the FQHCs make money to cover other costs that people can't pay for through their pharmacy. So like, for example, we have one here, um, Wilson Community Health Center, and they get their insulin for pennies, and then they'll sell a vial of insulin. I mean, they only sell a vial of Lantus for 
$3 for a vial, which is obviously still a huge fraction from what we would pay in the regular community pharmacy. Um, but they use that money to be able to fund other things that people can't pay for. So if they're going to have to break even on that, I feel like it's going to could cause a little bit of a problem for them. Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing when I was when I was reading this as I, I read that they had to pass it along and I was kind of interested as how they were going to do that because I uh, I work at a obviously a chain pharmacy and we're right down the road from some major major um, hospitals here in Cleveland and some of them use 340B pricing to get patients severely discounted um, or zero copay medications but if I remember this correctly and Ben you can correct me on this if I'm wrong we're getting re- uh, they're getting reimbursed the full price from what the PBMs uh, would pay us the same thing so say we bought an EpiPen for we'll just say 150 I know it's not, it's probably more like $600 anymore. But if we say we bought it for 150 and then they're reimbursing us like 160 maybe 155 if not under 150 sometimes. But if the FQHC gets it for a penny and they're getting reimbursed 160 that's like $160 of profit to what you said, Katie, to go towards other services, whether it be diabetes management or other things to help take care of indigent patients. Does that, is that, am I correct in thinking that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, that, that, that is like the point of the 340B program is that they are supposed to use the funds that they are, like the profits that they're making on that to provide these services to their indigent patients. And I don't think that anywhere in this rule it says that they have to pass those discounts along to the PBM, right? They, they can still bill a commercial payer for um, the products at $160 and buy them for a penny. Um, but in the relatively limited circumstance, so it's, it's more common in an FQHC because that's the point of them in a relatively limited circumstance though, of someone who does not have insurance, um, they're being required to pass along the discount. But again, this is only on these two products, gotcha. the, which, which are generally a, a decent profit center for them, but, um, it, it's, it's a much more limited uh, much more limited in scope than it certainly could have been. Gotcha. Does that make sense to you then, Katie? Yeah, I think it'll definitely have more of an impact with the insulin than the epinephrine. Yeah. But... Yeah. And I, I thought that was an interesting take on, I was looking at it a little bit different, but I guess that I didn't think about the cash paying patient in this case. And that's a good call out there. Um, one of the, one of the other parts that of the four executive orders he kind of listed with this was CMS announced, or there was a CMS announced finalized proposal for an international pricing index, which will lower payments to Medicare B providers, which I thought could really impact big pharma as well, given the fact they could lower their prices. Um, we'll kind of start with the same rotation. Ben, what would you think about this one? Michael, uh, this, this would be a huge deal. To have a Republican administration impose socialist price controls, because <laughs> that's what this is, um, is a huge deal. Um, because so what, what the international pricing index is Medicare would take the average price paid by all of the organization for economic and cooperative development, OECD, all of the rich countries in the world, take the average price that they pay for a drug. And then that would be the maximum that CMS would pay for that product. That represents a gigantic discount from what CMS is currently paying for these products because currently Medicare pays providers at a average sales price methodology. So if the physician buys something for $5,000, 
Medicare will pay them $5,000 plus a 3% markup or a 4% markup. Um, and then they'll also get their, their fee to administer the product to the patient. Now, again, this is part B drugs. These are drugs that are administered in a physician office, not drugs that you get from a pharmacy usually. And so th- these are products like Zortris. These are products like, uh, I-, I don't know. Um, Remicade. Z- Zortris is the one that comes to my mind. Remicade, that's the one. Man, I've been trying to think of that for two days. <laughs> <laughs> Remicade, yeah. Like th- These are products that the physician ad- administers to you via intravenous infusion in the office not products that you go to the pharmacy, pick them up, you take them home. And so th- this would be a gigantic uh, price decline because, um, as, as President Trump himself said, um, in Germany, for a number of products, they're paying 20% of what we are here. So for that same $5,000 product, they'd be paying 1000 bucks. And so um, going to the average of all the rich countries uh, would represent a dramatic decrease in the price that uh, Medicare would pay. And in effect, no physician would take that reimbursement. If they have to buy something for $5,000 and oh, yeah. um, sell it for $1,000. So in effect, what's going to happen is is the pharma companies will have to lower their price to that point um, so that the physicians will still be willing to, to take that reimbursement. Um, and... They're not going to be happy about that, obviously, one. And two, it's not really clear to me whether this is even legal. Um, This is a fairly dramatic uh, policy change, and I'm not sure that it's within Medicare's scope of uh, statutory authority to implement this kind of pricing structure um, without an act of Congress. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Um, but before I chime in, Katie, what would what were your thoughts on this kind of weird pricing index move? Well, I just hope that it actually has the intended outcome that it wants because, you know, is it are the drug companies actually going to end up lowering their prices so that people can still get their medication, or is it just going to greatly decrease access to these medications because providers are just going to stop buying them? You know, yeah. I don't know. I'm having a pessimistic viewpoint on it. <laughs> I think that's okay. I, totally I, fair. <laughs> I, I actually took a very similar route that you did, Katie, with this. When I read it, I kind of started breaking it apart into segments here. And so I was looking at it as, okay, international pricing index. That makes sense. We want to lower prices. I'm on board with that. I, I get that. And I'm not looking at all Medicare, just Medicare B drugs. But for instance, like some of the HIV drugs that recently have caught in some heat for like PrEP, like Truvada. It costs them roughly 5 to $6 to make it. I think we sell it for like a couple thousand. Why is there such a large gap there? Maybe we can bring these prices down to like 100 or a couple hundred dollars and make it much more reasonable. Everyone still makes a profit. And we'd better take care of people and save money. But when I looked at Medicare B, being in pharmacy, I started going, okay, is that going to impact our reimbursement on something like um, albuterol that gets billed to Medicare B that we dispense to patients all the time? I know it, it mentioned providers, but then I'm going, well, wait, are we a provider? Does that Do we have a loophole then? Or are we going to be considered providers? And it, it opened up that whole can of worms with it. And I was well, I was really kind of, I, it just got more confusing the more I dug into it. What were you going to say, Katie? I think that we are considered Medicare B providers if you give immunizations and you can bill Medicare B. 
Okay, you I would didn't be think about still that. Still considered a, med- a Medicare provider in that instance. That was one of the I'll, other I'll things I thought about here. too. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, you go. You, you know, you, you're you're talking. Go ahead. I was just gonna say one other thing that I just thought that it was gonna make it even harder for us to bill test strips under Medicare Part B. That was actually the first thing that came into my brain. Oh, I was yeah. like, we already can't get people their test strips. This is just gonna make it worse. Yeah, that was actually what came to me too, but because it's a drugs, I'm going, Well, that's not a drug, that's a medical device. Does that count? Oh, like that's true. I I was sitting so but I thought that won't. too. And I was like so confused by where is the line? It's so mercurial. Yeah, so I would say, I'll chime in on the provider point. So under Medicare B, um, pharmacies can be providers. The pharmacist, Mm. uh, unfortunately, is not. We we would all like to see that change, I think. Yeah. Um, But uh, the pharmacy can be a provider. And an example of of a slightly more expensive Medicare B drug that pharmacies do dispense is Bravana. Yep. Um, are for Motorola. Um, and yeah, it, it's a pain in the butt to bill. <laughs> yeah. Everything with Medicare and, B is a pain in the butt to bill at a pharmacy because we're used to live claims that go through. And then Medicare B will be like, to your point, Katie, <laughs> about the test strips, will be like, oh, when did they get their meter? I don't know. Ask the patient, when did you get your meter? I don't know. All right, let's make up a month and year and hope this goes through for you then. Right. <laughs> It's the worst. <laughs> what, was your, what was your last A1C? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I love that one. I've actually asked someone that before. They're like, I don't know. They said it was good. I think it was 135. I'm like, you can't have 135%. That was your blood sugar. <laughs> Definitely not good. <laughs> 13.5, still not good. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Medicare B is just like a whole, a whole mess when it comes to billing and pharmacy. So that's what I was thinking to myself is, does this even apply to us? I feel like it should, <laughs> but I mean, maybe I'm just totally way off here. I think that it'll have a, a limited impact on folks that are working community. It'll have a bigger impact on folks that are working hospital and like clinics. Cause you know, in a hospital system, probably the person who's sourcing these part B drugs is a pharmacist in right. the hospital. Yeah. Right. So it, it'll have an effect on their job. Um, and I think also it will move the Overton window for um, what is what is considered normal for drug pricing in federal policy generally, right? That that's yeah. I, I think that's an important concept to think about. Is like the bounds of what is normal are defined by what is currently happening. And if we move to a system of price controls based off of international prices. Um, that will move the window of what is normal and people will start asking the question, well, why don't we do this in Medicare part D? Um, right. So I think it'll have that more indirect effect on my life at least. Yeah. I think that, like you said, setting that benchmark and, or putting your foot in the sand of this is where we want price to be based off of is huge. And the crazy thing is, is I keep, this keeps popping in my head and I'm sure every pharmacist has seen the meme where Bernie Sanders campaign put around where it was like the price of Advair here versus the price of Advair in Canada or the price of this drug here versus the price of it in Canada. And it was obviously they're all lower in Canada because of his agenda, what he was trying to support. But at the same time, I also thought it was funny because he only compared the brand name. He wasn't comparing the generics, So the whole chart was kind of irrelevant since they all had generics out. But but nonetheless, it's a move to his sort of policy of, hey, we shouldn't have to pay more than Canada does, 
which I believe kind of moves us on to our next part where they talked about allowing reimportation of prescription medications, which is something that Trump has mentioned numerous times. Yeah. And we've also seen with Florida where I think they passed a law that you're allowed to import from Canada, even though they're like two and a half or 3000 miles away from Canada. (laughs) Uh, Katie, do you have anything first on that? I mean, I am just surprised that this actually finally became an actual executive order because I feel like Trump has been talking about this his entire presidency. Yeah. And now it's actually a thing. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I guess I don't really have a problem with it. I don't really have an opinion on it. I don't know if I should. (laughs) I feel like it's just increasing our ability to have more wholesalers to give us drugs. That's true. And maybe I'm interpreting it wrong. Yeah, I didn't think about actually buying it from a wholesale. I was thinking of buying it from a pharmacy, but the wholesaler brings up a whole different point. Ben, before I say anything, do you have something on that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'll I'll just say, so yes, brand name drugs are definitely cheaper abroad. Um, In fact, like six months ago, maybe a year ago now, this Australian pharmacist uh, DM to me and he's like, Hey, so Spariva costs like 50 bucks here. I think that we could work out something where I <laughs> ship stuff to you and you sell it at a massive profit. And I was like, um, <laughs> I don't know. If that's <laughs> wow. That's semi illegal. Like, like Katie was saying, cool that, like this sounds, uh, like if this was legal, that sounds great, but it's definitely not. Um, <laughs> but yes. So there's there's a reason why this idea has such, uh, I guess, roots in the in the political community, is that um, drugs are like brand name drugs are cheaper abroad. Generic drugs, I'm pretty sure we have the lowest prices in the world. I don't hmm. think you're going to find amlodipine for less than half a cent per tablet anywhere in the world because that's how much it costs right now. In case you were wondering, yeah. Um, and so, anyway, I, I don't think generic drugs are, are really cheaper elsewhere. Some of them, like, obviously there's going to be some price variation, but as a whole, this is mostly brand name drugs that we're talking about. And um, the reimportation thing, I personally, I, I, I just, I, I buy pharma's line on this. Um, you, you can fault me for that if you want, but their line is that the... Um, the FDA has created this closed system of drug distribution that prevents counterfeit drugs from entering our supply. Most. And for the most part, it's it's like today's drug supply is so much better than it was 30 years ago. Yes. Um, So so far as the uh, number of counterfeit medications. Now that we can talk about the quality of the products being produced by uh, Shenzhen Pharmaceuticals in China, um, which caused all of the rolling uh, ARB recalls. But um, as far as counterfeit medications entering the drug supply, we're way better than we were because um, Congress has passed laws that gave the FDA the authority to basically say you cannot sell products into the U.S. drug supply outside of this closed system. Um, and what this reimportation thing would do is it would allow products into the drug supply that are not through the FDA's um, controlled drug supply. And like, I, I honestly worry that some 
um, that if if this actually becomes a law, that some some guy is going to be like, yeah, I can go get insulin abroad. I can order this from this Canadian pharmacy, and he gets stuff shipped to him. But does he know that's from Canada? Does he know it's actually insulin? Um, the odds people are already it, doing that. I know, I know they are, <laughs> and I I don't think that they're getting what they think they're getting. Like when um, when NABP went and uh, looked at uh, Canadian pharmacies, they found that ninety eight percent of the online Canadian pharmacies yeah. were not based in Canada. Right. <laughs> and they tried to like, so how do you know that thing, it's what it is Yeah, to show us how to figure out if an online pharmacy was real. And I couldn't even understand it. <laughs> like I can't. When did they come out with this. that? How's a patient going to understand it? When well, it was probably like a year ago. I don't even I remember seeing that. Okay. Yeah. I'll, yeah. To, I'll have to put that in the show notes for people. Cause that'll be interesting. Uh, I have a few points on this one about the Canadian pharmacy thing. I have a friend who's on the podcast previously named Marvin Smith who was involved in his level in the Bahamas and helping bust a lot of the Bahamian and uh, Canadian pharmacies. I use air quotes, which you can't see on a podcast and how they were selling fake Viagra for years on, you know, online. And basically like they couldn't tell a difference until they chemically broke it apart. And I think it was like sawdust was inside, but like even the engraving was like down to like, I don't know, something like the nanometer was the exact same. So like looking at it, you could not tell the weight was the same, but it was just compacted sawdust. And I thought that was a, a pretty interesting thing that he had shared with me just on the side one time. I was like, oh, wow, that's that's what they're really doing. They're that good, huh? And then I heard from a lot of Canadians that because of this importation, obviously with Canada being directly north of us and more people trust stuff in Canada than per se Mexico, that their drug supply chain would just take a huge hit. And they've already been kind of strained with things on back order and, you know, on recall, what have you. And from what it sounds like from friends I have who have practiced here and there or now own pharmacies there, they have it worse than we do. So if more stuff goes on back order, Canada is going to be hosed. So even if we open this, we might see Trudeau step in and be like, nope, not on my watch, just to you know, protect his own uh, patients or his own citizens. And then where do we go? If you start going overseas, there's shipping, and who knows how all that gets involved. You can't just drive across to, to Spain or France or England and just pick something up across the border like you could in Maine or in some of the more northern states in the United States here. The other thing I thought was really interesting, and Ben, you touched on this with the safety thing. If you've ever read the book Bottle of Lies by Catherine Eban, any listeners, please consider that worthwhile homework. I am almost finished with it. It's an amazing book that shows kind of the fraud that was happening specifically in India more than anywhere else, but with they were making medications and just fabricating all the numbers and who knows what the hell was in it, even to the United States with the FDA. And the FDA was going to go check them and was you know going in there and doing audits, but they were just whining and dining these people and schmoozing them. And yeah, they were probably better other places, but there was definitely cases where I think it was, I could be wrong with this. I, it's been a while since I've read it since my daughter's teething right now. But uh, there was an issue where the HIV drugs being sent to Africa basically weren't tested. And they're like, yeah, we'll send them. And who knows what the heck they got. And you're, I'm thinking to myself, this is a train wreck. And I know that the FDA and everyone recognizes the FDA is the best of the best when it comes to regulating this. But we still have an issue with it, with certain things. Specifically, generics is what they were focused on in this case and why they're so cheap. 
but I think that to what you said, if all of a sudden we start seeing generic, you know, amlodipine coming for, you know, a whole bottle is like a dollar for a hundred or something great or even cheaper than that, I guess would to Ben's point, but that's could be a huge issue. And the last thing I had was I've seen, I don't know if you guys have, please share your experiences with this where some insurance companies were offering to fly people down to Mexico to buy prescription drugs for like the whole year all at once. Cause it was so much cheaper to pay for them to give someone, this was before COVID it was cheaper for them to pay for someone to fly down there, then get a year supply of their medication than it was to pay for a whole year in the United States. Have you guys seen that at all? Yes. Yeah, I've seen um, that. That's actually, that's actually my state's public employee health plan. Oh, Jesus. Um, has, been, <laughs> has been flying people down to Mexico to, I should say, they're flying them down to right at the border with Mexico, having folks drive across the border, pick up some Humira from a hospital there, and then drive back across the border, fly home. And they do this every three months. Um, and, yeah, it, it's cheaper for them because the drug prices are that much higher here, which is insane. Until COVID hits and all those immunosuppressed people can't get their drugs or if they hop on a plane, good luck. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it, be it does save their money. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, it absolutely does. Yeah. What were you, you said you had saw that, Katie, before? Yeah, I was just going to say there has to be, like, a better way to do this than shipping people to other countries to get their drugs. Like, we cannot come up with a better strategy as a country to make this work. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, we have we have coronavirus tests that can get you results in literally 15 minutes with Abbott ID now. But, you know, we're going to fly you over here because it's cheaper. What? How does that make any sense? It makes no sense. <laughs> I think that we're a third world country so far as our drug pricing is concerned. I mean, like, it, so far as healthcare quality is concerned, yeah. um, in the United States generally, like, and and healthcare pricing, not just drug pricing, right? Like, yeah. going That's to the hospital cool. here can put you in the put you into bankruptcy. In yeah. any other country, that is not the case. Yeah. And we've seen where essential workers are having that happen to them with COVID. And you're like, okay, you're told you have to go to work. You literally had no option because if you quit, you couldn't get unemployment and get the $600 bonus every week. And now, oh, I'm sorry. That sucks. Yeah, that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> go off on that for a long time. Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's try and stay off that diatribe, I guess, because that could go for yes. a while. Um, thank you for reeling us in a little bit there, Katie. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, the other one I want to start with here, and this kind of goes into some of that with the cost, obviously. Um, it was a big one about the rebate rule, which I believe would mainly affect the bottom line of PBMs. I don't think this would affect pharmacies. And I think it would really help patients. There were some specific details that Ben had brought up, but Katie, what did you think of this part? Okay, I'm very excited about this one. All right. So, well, I mean, just because PBMs obviously are crushing us all um in the community space and so if we can get some regular it seems like what they're trying to do is regulate the pbms a little bit so um i don't know how familiar people are with the reimbursements that pbms are getting um but basically what's happening now is that the pbms are working out deals with the manufacturers of the drugs to get a rebated price on that medication so they're not paying the full price. So we keep saying Humira, $5,000. Well, the 
Express Scripts is going to work a deal to get Humira for less than $5,000, they'll share some of that cost, uh, that savings with, you know, their insurer. Um, but ultimately, the patient ends up getting not doesn't end up getting any of the savings. So the cost savings really just stays with the PBM. They they keep money because they say we did the work, the negotiation. They give a little back to the insurance, and then the patient doesn't get anything. So pretty much now all they're saying is, I mean, we just have to share the the savings with the patient, like the which is the ultimately who should be receiving the savings anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's going to be great. But the only problem is going to be if that still ends up affecting the pharmacy and the pharmacy isn't getting reimbursed appropriately. You know, I had that exact same fear of are they going to start cutting pharmacies even more then because they're not getting that reimbursement from the from the rebate, if you will. I think a lot of this, this part specifically is the part that you saw pharmacies praising because it's it shines a flashlight in a little dark corner of what the PBMs are doing with the prices and how they're just making just obviously billions upon billions of dollars with this. And I, mm-hmm. I don't say that lately. I, I know just how much they overcharge my state of Ohio. And I don't think that was even necessarily kind of the rebates. I could be wrong. But the, uh, the interesting thing about it is this will do away with the DAW9 and could save pharmacies a lot of money because I might have to carry as many brand names was my thought. Or if I do, at least the patient's getting it for a much lower fee. So when I'm carrying it, it's going to move out the door quicker. So to help my turnover, help my business side of it, because I actually did a whole podcast episode on this before with Mike Shannon for the listeners from Lily's pharmacy on just DAW nine and how, how much nonsense that is that the insurance companies really want to promote say brand name Symbicor over the generic, even though it's the same thing because they're getting a bigger kickback and making more money off of it. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's the what's happening in Ohio, right? That's the yeah. the what the lawsuit is on. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely part of that on there as well. Uh, ben, you had some really good specific examples in your blog post. If you care to share that with the listeners on some of this, I would love to hear yeah, them. You ben. Got it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, okay. So number one, yeah, this sh- shines a dark light into the corner of what President Trump s- this describes as. These middlemen who no one knows what they do, but they make a lot of money. I think I made no a lot of rich people are. very angry. Like <laughs> he, he repeated that line like five times. It was my favorite part of the whole speech. Well, it's true. Um, it is true. Saying, no one. He kept saying no one knows who they are. I'm like, no, we actually do know who they are. We can tell you who they are. Well, well like, pharmacists do, but that's that's very niche. There's only yeah. about 360,000 of us in the U.S. We're not normal people. Yeah. <laughs> We're not. We're talking no, drug pricing on a no, podcast. We're, we're, we're not normal. We know who these guys are. <laughs> well, I think um, Trump should know who they are. Yeah, he, he should. Yeah, you'd think after he rant, rants about them for long enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was that was by far my favorite part. But um, so, but getting into examples. So, um, so the point of a PBM, I guess, is to save someone money by. Um, by influencing which drugs get dispensed, right? Um, because there are massive price differences it, within a therapeutic class, within a uh, within like just a drug, basically. Um, and so, by so the, the point of a of a PBM is to set a formulary, and you can save a ton of money um, by just choosing the right the right drug to dispense. And so PBMs just will will list out 
drugs that are covered versus not covered. Um, and the reason that they um, that they will select a drug over another is, in theory, because it's either better or because it costs less, and hopefully both. Yeah. And um, what the rebate – so rebates um, are illegal under the anti-kickback statute. Um, you the, the anti-kickback statute specifically st- says that you cannot um, pay someone or accept payment for um, anything that would influence the ordering of, uh, of a federally funded service. So, Wouldn't that be a kick? That would be a kickback, not a rebate. Because rebates these are rebates not are kickbacks. Yeah, that, that's what I'm getting at. Is these are kickbacks? They would be illegal, except that the Department of Health and Human Services, when Medicare Part B went into effect, um, put into place a regulation called a safe harbor um, that says that these rebates, so long as you um, play within these rules, are legal. Uh, <laughs> but if you step outside of these bounds that we set. They are kickbacks and they are illegal. How much lobbying what do you think the, PCMA threw at just that one rule? I bet you like ten million because oh, they, probably, they probably make so three hundred million off of it. E- easily, easily. <laughs> and so, it, it, anyway, so the so what this proposed rule would do is to remove that safe harbor, and so rebates would become illegal um, because they they are out, out without that. Um, Without that safe harbor, they are illegal. Um, the, the the only thing that makes them legal is this is this rule that uh, HHS put into place, which is why I think that this one has the best chance of actually happening, because the other law, the, the other executive orders that Trump put into place are mostly in direct um, violation of acts of Congress, like importing drugs from Canada. Right. Hmm. The Drug Quality and Security Act says you can't do that. <laughs> and that's an act of Congress. The administration can't go against um, the acts of Congress. This one, though, the only thing that's making it legal is a rule that the administration 12 years ago put into place. And so they can they can rescind that rule. That's fine. That's well within their statutory authority. Um, anyway, so but the, the example that I that I gave for like why drug um, why, why having a formula is important is my, my favorite one, which is Zegarid. Oh, um, are, are you familiar with Zegarid, Katie? Yes. <laughs> so it, it, it is the most scammy thing I've ever heard of. Um, yeah. you, you give someone Omeprazole, Prilosec, right? It costs the pharmacy like six cents a, a capsule. You sell it for, I don't know, 20 bucks, whatever. Everything's fine in the world pharmacy made some money if the pharmacy instead gives this person omeprazole with baking soda in it (laughs) um it it suddenly costs two thousand dollars um it like hundred hundred percent like hundred times as much money because you put baking soda in there (laughs) (laughs) which and like this is not the only example right it's just my favorite one because it's so incredibly farcical um but like you can do the same thing if you take uh flexoril 10 milligrams you'll make pennies you you give someone flexoril seven and a half milligrams you'll make 200 bucks it's stupid yeah mm-hmm. i i the pharmacies like 
I know you're going to ask me later what one thing would I change about pharmacy. I would say I should not get paid more because I chose a different NDC. I should get paid yeah. more because I helped the person take their meds on time and reach their therapeutic outcomes. Right. Yeah. That's what I was trying to do. Not find weird loopholes in the system, like stupid adding bicarb to something to make <laughs> 10 to a hundred times as much money. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to say, Katie, I appreciate the way that you express disgust here because I can like, I'm with you on this, but I just love that you're being so vocal about it. And the uh, oh, this is just how I am always with everything. <laughs> great, <laughs> I, I think we need. I think there's one thing again, kind of why I started this podcast. We need pharmacists to be more vocal when we see things like that, whether it's with patients, whether it's with politicians, or whether it's with you know other healthcare providers. This is something that we definitely have to really kind of speak up on because we see these things that they don't see. And one example I know that for years has been frustrating doctor's offices, depending on what state you're in, and this kind of goes with that rebate rule that um, Ben was elaborating on, albuterol. It now is generic if for oh Proair. <laughs> thank you, Katie. It's generic for Proair, for Ventolin. Um, what's the third one? Uh, Prevental. And oh so they're, they're all generic, right? And they all essentially work the same. They all have 200 doses in each inhaler. But depending on which insurance you pick, you have to stock different ones. So now I have to stock like three different generic inhalers. And in some cases, the brand name Ventolin, because they have a rebate with them, just so that I can serve all my patients their emergency inhaler that they absolutely freaking need. And it's ridiculous because like you said, it all just matters on which NDC you pick. And you're like, really? It's all freaking albuterol. Why can't it? Now, if a patient says this one works a little better, that's a different discussion. But, you know, for the insurance side, why does it really matter if because they're getting the kickback or the rebate, if you're going to call it that, which is what this should help shine a bright light into. So maybe we'll see the generic Ventolin, which I think is still cheaper, all of a sudden have a huge uptick in sales because it just makes sense now when it comes to these rebates. But I could be wrong. But uh, Katie, do you have anything you want to add on that? Well, I was just I mean, this is another topic, but why is albuterol $47 wholesale price? Like it should be <laughs> like albuterol is old. Like yeah. albuterol was generic when I was in pharmacy school and then they had to take the HFAs out. And then that was why I got rebranded <laughs> back and became so expensive. Like albuterol should be very cheap. It's so yeah. stupid. It used to be, I think $9 at Walmart for a long time uh, before yeah. they had the HFA. Yeah. The HFA or whatever it was, the CFC free one. So yeah, I think that that's a, Oh yeah. Uh, not HFA, CFC. No, I knew what you meant. Yeah, so it's yeah. just it's just ridiculous because, like you said, yeah, it's still like five times the price for no reason other than the CFC versus HFA part, and it it's still been generic now for at least I think five years. So like, what the heck's going right. on? Yeah, All right, um, was there anything else either well, one of you, you wanted to cover with this topic before we? Well, I kind of I was I was just wondering like, what do you guys think that this will do to drug prices then? Ooh, I, Ben, you can go first on that. I'll, I'll, I'll try and take that. So um, PCMA, the PBM lobby, says that this will cost $200 billion a year, which um, if, if this were implemented with no changes in formularies and, <laughs> the, and, and the pharma companies don't do anything with their pricing, yeah, it will. Um, but like – with the Trump administration talking about these international pricing indexes and stuff, do, do you really think that um, pharma companies are not going to lower their prices 
to like th- 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 this is the thing that gets me is like the the reason that rebates exist is because PBMs or sorry no pharma companies need to price discriminate they can't they cannot have one price for everyone right. um, so they set one insanely high price and then they discount from there based on how much of how much bullying power you have against them if you're Express Scripts you get it for fifty percent off. If you are Joe Schmo, nobody, you get it for 10% off. If you're Medicaid, you get it for 90% off. Um, but they want to be able to charge the highest price possible to every single buyer. And so that's why rebates exist. If, if we eliminate rebates, they have to set a lower price for everyone or else they won't sell anything. Um, and th- that's the thing that gets me excited about this is like they're going to have to lower their prices. If they don't, I feel like, like too optimistic about that. Maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, I, I, I just don't think they're gonna do it. I I think it's a game I, I of chicken. That, like, I think it's what, a yeah. game of chicken where you're gonna because obviously Trump's had some bad polling recently. So no matter what, I think part of this is election motivated. Um, but that happens every year, no matter who's in office, and. I do think that because, you know, we are seeing from a very conservative administration with who still has a very conservative head of the Senate, they're trying to do this as something that can help make a big impact to win re-election and to kind of save that for him. That's my two cents, looking at this from outside of pharmacy. But at the same point, I think when they put this line in the sand of international pricing, it's doing the opposite. Exactly what Ben described with pharma, it's doing the opposite. It's going, nope, you want to set these high prices? We're going to start here for negotiating. And it will probably end somewhere above that. But I th- I actually think that they will because the next administration, if it is Joe Biden or somebody else, but we'll assume it's, if it's not Trump, it's Joe Biden, just given the history, that he's further left and has been working with people like Bernie in his campaign. So I really think that if this is where Trump is aiming, where are they going to aim? And that is, to Ben's point, where they're going to have to move at some point. Now, is that optimistic? Yes. But the option is, okay, well, then we just cut you out of every government program. Now you make no money. And that could be the really bully pulpit being used right there if Congress and the president decided to do that. Do you think there's any chance of that, Katie? Because you sound like you're on the opposite end. I just feel like the – I just feel like the – that for that to happen, the PBMs are, or the drug companies are going to have to agree to make less money and neither of them are going to want to make less money. So they're going to figure out another way to just suck more money out of either the patient, the pharmacy or the government. Well, you know, if if they wanted to make more money on average, I think it was Pfizer and I forget the other one I looked at. I think it was AstraZeneca. They only spend about seven to ten percent on research and about you know twenty-five to thirty-five percent advertising. So if they want to make more money, they could always advertise a little less. But that's just my two cents. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, since we I think we covered that pretty well, I'm going to move on to the final questions. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and you guys obviously can both answer. Um, we'll start with Katie first. If you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Well, I will. I will gear my answer towards community pharmacy. Um, And I would say that I would like to be reimbursed for the quality of care that I provide instead of the number of prescriptions that I give to someone. I think that's an awesome answer for many reasons. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for that. Ben, what was yours? 
very similar. Um, like I said, I would, I, I really hate the system that we have where I get paid based on which NDC I dispense, right? If I dispense someone Zegrid, I make money. If I dispense them Omeprazole, I really don't. And similarly, if I dispense more prescriptions, I make money. Whereas like that, that is not how I was trained in school. I was yeah. trained to analyze drug therapy and, and make recommendations to change it so that it matches what to, to reach the patient's goals of therapy, right? I want to be paid for helping people reach their goals of therapy, not for giving them a drug every single month Yeah, and more of them every single month, right? Uh, more drugs are sometimes necessary, but like there are far, far too many cases where someone gets unnecessary therapy all the time. And Omeprazole is like the best example, right? Yeah. Do you really need to be on it for 20 years? <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, we see those MTM claims all the time come through of like, switch them to Zantac. And you're like, I would, but that's on back order. So maybe next time. But um, all right. So if you guys could change one law about pharmacy, Katie, you can go first. What would it be and why? So I'm going to just pick a kind of an easy one. And I would get rid of forced mail order pharmacy. And I think that if patients want to use mail order pharmacy, then they can opt in. Um, but I don't, I think that they should have to opt in and I don't think that they should be forced um, because that creates number, first and foremost, it creates so much waste yeah. and people get things that they don't need all the time. And that is not providing quality health care. That is just sending people pills in the mail every month. So I would get rid of that. I, I'm a huge fan of that. And I think Loretta Bosing, who was previously on, who has the change.org petition with 170,000 signatures saying the same thing, would also love to hear that one. Yeah. Uh, ben, what was yours? Before I give mine, I just want to say absolutely. I love, I love that. Let's, let's, let's kill mail order pharmacy mandates. They did that um, in Georgia. They got rid of, you're not allowed to mandate mail order pharmacy in Georgia anymore. I did not realize that. Yes. I saw that on Twitter. That's the only reason I knew. <laughs> so now I'm like, well, like, we need to copy that law and do it in North Carolina. <laughs> I, I might have to try and find that one to put it in the show notes and try and do a follow-up episode on it. Yeah, that would be awesome. What I was going to say, though, is that like right now quality of care in pharmacy land is, is defined by adherence metrics. How many days did someone have medicine to take? And so in that situation, the mail order pharmacies beat all of us to, to a pulp, right? right. Like if, if we're saying how many pills did someone get over the course of a year, obviously auto refilled mailed to your house medicines is going to beat you have to go to the pharmacy to pick it up, yeah. right? Whether you need and, it or not, they're going to mail it out. Right. And so, of course, they win on that metric. But like, does that control their blood pressure? Does that control their diabetes? Does that um, help them to overcome their depression and get off of their opioids? No, it doesn't. Yeah. If you've and ever it's... worked a drug take back day, you know how much waste <laughs> people bring of stuff that they need to throw away that they just received from a mail order. Yeah, all Absolutely. the time. Oh, that those are all Absolutely. great ones. I think that's an awesome one, Ben. And I, I a hundred percent support both of those. And I love that it tied in with mail order pharmacy. That was not 
planned out ahead of time for people listening. That was just kind of random happenstance. <laughs> uh, hey, Ben, Katie, thank you guys so much for coming on here today. I really like having this discussion and kind of flushing out what we're seeing a lot of pra- pl- lot of praise thrown at Trump for because I think there is some good intentions there. I just want to see uh, want to see how it all plays out, obviously. And thanks again for coming on and discussing it. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks Absolutely. for having us. Thank you. And as always, listeners, if you can leave me a five-star review or share this episode, it helps people find me and kind of share what we're trying to do here, the political pharmacist, to kind of bring light to some of these dark corners of pharmacy and in healthcare in general. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.